Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Catechism. At BRCC, we believe that our catechism is a useful tool to help us understand and grow in our faith. But why? Find out in our series, Catechism. We are today going to be uh, finishing up this little run we've been doing through uh, the early questions in our catechism. And we're going to be looking at the question today of can I keep God's law? And so we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 24. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 24. I will be using the uh, New International Version this morning. It'll be on your screens. It's in your welcome booklet. And you can follow along in your Bible or Bible app. Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. Hear the word of the God of holiness, love, and integrity. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways in the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So uh, when I was a uh, young midshipman, we had a whole series of lectures they still actually have called Forrestall Lectures where they would bring kind of important people in who would address the brigade and speak on a particular topic. And uh, my plebe year at the academy was actually when uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini had come to power in Iran. You remember they took the hostages and kept them for over 400 days and we were having to count it down. And many of you may not remember, but Ross Perot, who had been a Naval Academy graduate, had a company called EDS, and they had had some employees who had also been captured at a separate location and were being held by the Iranians. And his company employed a whole bunch of prior military folks, and so he put together his own rescue team, and they went in and they rescued their employees and got them out of Iran. And so he had come to the academy to speak on that topic. And as you can imagine, to a bunch of young midshipmen, we were pretty interested and excited by it all. But he kept coming back to a point. He made a strong point that America was good. And he was quoting Alexis de Tocqueville and then kind of building on that. And he kept saying, America is uh, great because Americans are basically good people. Americans are good people. And so... The next day we were down at our table and the discussion was going and people kept turning to this point and, and I said, uh, I think that that's bogus. Uh, Americans aren't basically good people, we're all evil. And everybody said, yes, Brett, spread your wisdom to the rest of us. Um, no, that's not what happened. Suddenly there was a firestorm. I mean, you would have thought I'd gone up and slapped their mother or something. I mean, people were really upset with me. What do you mean? I mean, because they were certain that, well, human beings are probably good, but certainly Americans are essentially good people. And, and that's an indisputable fact. So I want to ask the question today, as we've been following through in our catechism, are people actually good? 
do we actually keep God's laws? We've been seeing God's laws a reflection of who God is. God is perfect in holiness, love, and integrity. He calls us to be perfect in holiness, love, and integrity. And the whole law, which is a reflection of God, you remember Jesus said can be summarized and broken down to two things. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So, do we do that or not? Now, in our catechism, question 10, that we're looking at, you can see here what it is up on the screen. Uh, and the question is, can you live up to all of this perfectly? It's question 11, I'm sorry. Uh, can you live up to all of this perfectly? And the answer that we have is no. I have a natural tendency in thought, word, and deed to not love God and my neighbor as he has commanded. So no, I don't keep this summary. I don't keep the law. And my natural tendency is not to do this. So we're going to dive into this text. There are many others we could use to see what the Scripture actually says regarding what we are like in our essence, in our core, and how that works its way out into our actions. So the first point, which we're seeing from the Apostle Paul's text here, is all are essentially sinful, not good. In our essence, in our core, it's not, we're not just talking about our actions, but in our essence or our core, we are actually not good. We are actually not bent towards God and good and righteousness and holiness and love and integrity. We're actually bent away from all of those things. Now, why do I say this? Notice how Paul begins this summary in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. And by the way, you might note if you look in your Bible that there's quotes around these because all of these are quotes out of the Old Testament. This isn't just Paul's word. Paul's taking a whole bunch of quotes out of the Old Testament, particularly out of the book of Psalms, to tell us what we're like. And so notice he says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one, no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, and together they become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So who thinks Paul thinks Americans are basically good people? It's very, very clear, right? He, he, Paul looks, and he's, note the universal language. Six times he uses the phrase no or no one, and the seventh time is all have turned away. So seven times here Paul does this, and you might note the number, He's, he's saying in the fullest sense, with all that we can do, with the, with the number of perfection, I want you to understand no one is like this. Everyone is the opposite of this. And notice that it ends with the exclamation, not even one. Now this all makes it very simple for us. Paul is stating here, no one is good. No one is righteous. No one understands. No one, not one human being in their natural state seeks God. None. That's a very strong phrase here. And it's important for us to grasp. I've said before, I, when I talk to many Americans about what the gospel is, a response I get back regularly is basically, I'm essentially a good person. And then when I turn to this passage and say, well, read this, then you get the shocked look in their eyes. And they start thinking, well, Paul must be just having a bad day or something. I mean, how can he define people this way? But the reason Paul is doing it, I want you to see here, Paul is telling us that this isn't just, our problem is not just a few external actions. It's not that we occasionally violate God's law. Paul is saying at the core of our being, there is a problem. So notice the way we tried to get this across in our catechism question is, not just do I live up to all of it perfectly. The answer is not just, well, no, I sometimes stumble. No, I have a natural tendency. My bent, my go-to move, my trademark is to not pick righteousness, but to choose evil. It's my trademark move is to turn away from God, not to seek God, but rather to seek to hide from God. That's actually the way that we are. And this is a clear biblical teaching. This passage, the entire passage, hammers this home many, many times in many, many ways. But remember, this isn't just Paul's words. Paul's quoting the Old Testament. 
He's telling people whose trust is in their ability to keep the, the law, to, to follow the old covenant. He's saying, well, let me tell you what it actually says. It tells you over and over and over again, you do not do this. You fall far short of this. You cannot keep the Word of God. And it's not just the Old Testament and even Paul. Jesus himself says the exact same thing. In Mark chapter 10, verse 18, a person has come up to Jesus and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at him and says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now there's no question Jesus is inviting him to a deeper question, which is, do you understand who I am? You are right, I am good, but do you understand what that means? But there's a lesser point for us to grab, which is this. No one is good except God. All other people are actually flawed and fallen and sinful. Now, some people, and my friends there at the table that day at the academy, got really upset, and they, they act as if this is a terrible view of humans. And when I have this discussion with people, and I've had it regularly, they're like, what a, what a bad view of humans you have. And my response to them is, do you get out of the house much? Do, do you look around have you read human history at all? G.K. Chesterton, the uh, great English writer, quipped at the early part of the 1900s, uh, he said, certain new theologians dispute original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology which can be really proved. Chesterton said, look, you can't prove, you know, that Jesus was divine and human and one nature, and all these things, but you, you, you can't sit out there and, and, and prove it every day. But if you just wander out there, you will know we are bent and something is wrong. Just look. It is all around you. It is obvious. And this doctrine of original sin is really, really important for us to understand. Now, the Apostle Paul takes this and he develops it. And he says, look, because you are essentially uh, sinful, note the extent and the depth of sin. Paul's going to say it affects every part of who we are, and it runs to the core of every part of who we are. So in our question, we had said that it affected our uh, thoughts and our words and our deeds. And I want you to see Paul brings up the same three areas here in Romans chapter 3. First, Paul says, we are sinful in our thoughts, in our hearts and in our minds, and our thoughts and our desires, the inward part of us, we are sinful. So notice he begins there in verse 11. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. So he says, you don't understand with your mind. You're not thinking like God or after God. And you don't seek God with your heart. There are people who try to, you know, well, if I could just get down to the core of my being, but my heart is good. My heart seeks God. Paul says, no, it does not. You do not seek God. If God did not seek you, friend, you wouldn't be here today, nor would I. Because we do, there is no one who seeks God. We have a basic problem in our interior, in our mind, and in our heart. And so our internal attitude, Paul summarizes at the end of all this, notice the final verse is, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul's saying your internal attitude is you don't fear God. Your, your internal attitude is not, again, that you are after God. Now, by fear of God, he's not talking about that I'm afraid of God and that I'm cringing from God, but it is a right disposition of love and obedience towards God as our Creator and Lord. And Paul's saying that is absent from the basic human disposition after the fall. Rather than responding to God lovingly and saying, I want to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and therefore I want to love my neighbor as myself, we don't live with that fear. We don't follow that way. We turn after ourselves. So Paul, notice, begins with our thoughts, our internal desires, and our internal disposition. Secondly, he then moves on and says, that works itself out in our speech. Because we are bent deep down inside, it shows up in our words. 
So notice in verses 13 and 14, their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. So notice he, a bunch of different ways here, is saying this comes out in your speech. But notice Paul very graphically, and I love this, he's picked Old Testament verses that deal with every part of the speech process. It starts with the throat. The actual Greek word for throat is larynx, from which we get larynx, voice box. And Paul says, starting down in your throat, starting down in your voice box, it's an open grave. Now, in the Hebrew mind, graves are unclean. And graves are supposed to be covered over because they're full of corruption. And they, in fact, are going to have disease in them. They're an unclean thing. But Paul says, rather than being a closed over grave, your throat, your, your voice box is an open grave. It's full of corruption. And it's spewing it forth. The next thing he says is, and then your tongue practices deceit. So your word arises out of this grave. And then your tongue adds deceit to it. And then as a final shot, before you actually speak the word, your lips are like an adder, an asp, a poisonous snake, and you inject poison into the word. So it's corrupt, full of putrefaction and nasty stuff. It comes up uh, to your tongue where deceit is added, and then you inject poison into it before you put it out. Who thinks that's a good picture of our words? See, this is not a flattering statement Paul's making. He's saying this is what human speech is like. And so he then says, your whole mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. So Paul's saying your, your inward bent is away from God, and so it shows up in your speech. This is why we speak the way we do. Now, let me say two things that are important about this. Number one, sometimes in our culture, we act as if words don't matter, but they do matter. Words really do matter. If you've ever had someone speak in a manner like this to you, and we all have, it's incredibly painful. It is hard to forget. But here's a second thing that comes from that, which is what we also want to say is, well, I spoke in anger but, but I'm not really like that, okay? I may have used cursing in my language. I may have spread slander about another person that bears the image of God, but that's not the way I am. And here's the biblical answer. Yes, it is. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew 15. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. This is when the disciples had gotten on the wrong side of some of the Pharisees by not washing their hands ceremonially before they ate. And Jesus is having an argument because the Pharisees, see, they're very concerned about keeping ritual laws. That's what we humans like to do. If we can just reduce the law down to a few rituals I can keep. And Jesus is saying, don't you understand that whatever you eat goes into your body and then out of your body. That's not your problem. Your problem is what's coming from within you. And your words are arising. And when I hear your words, I know that they are flowing from an unclean spring. That's what's going on. It is polluted down deep. And so your sinful speech arises from a sinful heart. But if we have a sinful heart, which Paul has told us in the first couple of verses we have, and then they work themselves into our sinful words, what's the last place they're going to end up then? In my actions. It's my thoughts, my words, and my deeds. So notice Paul then moves on to the next thing, which is our actions in verses 15 to 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not no. So he's moved from words to actions, from organs of speech to the organs of your lifestyle, if you were. In other words, we speak with our lips and our throat and our mouth. Now he's talking about our feet, which path that we actually walk out. And notice the description of his thing here. Paul's very strong. He says not only 
are our feet walking an evil path, but they are swift to shed blood. Now, we might look and say, well, come on, Paul. That's, that's overly swift to shed blood. I remind you, this is actually the Old Testament. But let's go back and ask ourselves a question. So somebody help me here. I, I forget these things. In what chapter did sin first enter our story? Genesis chapter 3. So we, we sin in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, at the end of Genesis chapter 3. And, and when's the first murder? What chapter is that? Four. How, how long did it take us to get from sin to murder? You, right. You didn't even have to turn the page. Okay? So Paul's not just making something up here. If you just go back and read your Bible, you get the first sin. The second sin we read about literally is murder. It's shedding blood. And so Paul says, don't you understand? This is how sin works. It runs. We always think we can keep it contained, and it is not contained. So your feet are swift to shed blood. Notice he goes on and says, ruin and misery mark their ways. They're walking a path, and behind them, what they leave, their footprints are ruin and misery. He said they don't even know the path of peace. We don't even know it. We don't understand it. Now, People say, this sounds overly harsh, to which I say, have you read history? Human history is a sad story of murder, mayhem, and war. And it used to be, if I were preaching this 120 years ago, you know what people would have told me? Well, that was before We've moved beyond that. We've progressed. As we are entering the glorious 20th century, we have put that behind us. And if I was a time traveler and went back and told them, really? You're going to kill more people in this century than ever before. You're going to have two wars that are so great, they're known as world wars, untold destruction that's your progress they would have thought i'd lost my mind but in fact i would have been correct and i wish i could say that now we've moved into a new millennium it would be better but right at the beginning of our millennium of course terror starts with the coming down of the towers and this stuff has continued on and on and on in 2017 the most recent statistics that i could find there are 65.6 million human beings who have been forcibly displaced worldwide because of persecution, conflict, violence, or human rights violations. That's according to the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. 65 million. There aren't that many countries that have 65 million people. And they're not, this, this is not because the river got flooded and they had to move away. We're not talking about all that. We're talking about human beings trying to kill them. 65 million, that's today. And I suspect the numbers are worse in 2019 than they were in 2017. This is the way humans are. And these evil actions arise from an evil heart. Notice Jesus in the verse we just quoted in Matthew 15. He continues and tells us that. Matthew 15, beginning of verse 18, the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Notice he's going through the Ten Commandments. And he's saying, you violate the commandments. It's what you do, and the reason you do it is it arises from an evil heart. Know when you see these actions. Know when you speak words of slander, when you lie about your neighbor, when you steal, when you commit murder. Know that you did that because that's who you are. It reveals something about our nature. And so, what we're told then is, the conclusion is, we are sinful to the core, and we violate God's law. Can you live up to all of this perfectly? No, I cannot. In fact, I have a natural tendency to not love God or my neighbor as he has commanded. We don't just do sinful actions. We have a natural tendency. We have a sinful 
nature. We don't just have a few actions that are sinful. We sin in thought, we sin in word, and we sin in deed. And we don't just sin, but have a natural bent to not love God nor our neighbor. It's not that, well, I do these things, but my natural bent is to love God. No, if your natural bent was to love God, you wouldn't do these things. If your natural bent was to love your neighbor, you wouldn't do these things. Now, this is hard because, see, when I would get angry at my kids, I wanted to say, well, that's not really the way I am. But yes, it is. And in that pressure-packed moment, when the word pops out of my mouth, it's a magnifying glass into my heart. See, Here's the reality. We like to think, again, I've got some external sin problems, but internally I'm okay. Friend, you've got so many things in your heart that you're just too chicken to do. And so do I. We don't do them because we're afraid of what the repercussions might be, but deep in the depths of my heart, if I thought I could get away with it, And if you don't believe that, look, what happens when you get into a city and suddenly for some reason they know the police will not be coming in? What's the, let's go ahead and predict what's going to happen. Mass, rioting, looting, everybody goes crazy is what they do. And it's not just a few people, this happens over and over and over again. So this is our problem. Now, that's where the catechism question ends, but I'm not going to leave us there because I would be a bad, bad pastor if I did that. I, I want to talk about God's cure for our sin. Because see, all of this, remember the law shows us our sin, but it does that to drive us to Christ and to remind us where our hope lies. And God has made provision for us in his mercy in three different ways for our sin. Number one, Christ's blood has washed away our sins. Now, all of this is there in Romans 3, 4, 5, and 6. I'm going to bring in a few other passages. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, In him, speaking of Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. I love that phrase, the riches of God's grace. God doesn't have a little. He is rich. He is overflowing in grace because, man, do I need that. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. We're afraid to own up to how deep our sin goes, but we need to understand, see, the gospel has made provision for this. Our sin has stained us and everything about us, but the promise is that Christ's blood is sufficient to cleanse, to purify, to remove me, my sin from me. It is that Christ has redeemed us, paying the penalty for our sins so that we might be free. That's what redemption is. There is a price that has been paid to bring us back to God. And in doing that, He has cleansed us. So through the blood of Christ, we are free from any stain or penalty of sin. If you are here as a Christian and you are trusting, remember in in, in our text, Paul said, the law is here not to make us declared righteous it'll never do that but so that we will look to jesus and if you are here and you are a christian you have done that know that your standing is not halfway clean you are cleansed you are purified of every stain of sin your sin is deeper than you can imagine and that that's not just a statement about you and well i've got to figure it out My sin's deeper than I can understand. I've been meditating and laboring and working on this for 40 years now, but I still am astounded when I realize how deep my sin is. But no matter how deep it is, His ability to cleanse and remove it is deeper still. It is greater still. No matter how great your sins are, His mercy is more. And friends, that is good news. Second thing that Christ has done is Christ's righteousness is given to us to make us positively holy. Back in our text in Romans 3, notice what Paul says. But now, 
So the law did its work, but now a righteousness from God. Notice where it comes. This is not my righteousness. It is a righteousness from God. Apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Paul's statement here is not just that your sin is removed, but that positive holiness, positive righteousness is given to you. So if you are here, if you are one of the people who believes your sins are cleansed away, all negative is removed from your account, and all positive that you will ever need is given to you, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so no matter how deep your sin is, that sin that's been washed away, now you are counted as if your every thought, every word, Every deed, the, the secret things, are all absolutely positively pure in internal desire and external action. And that's the gift of God in Jesus Christ to us. So my salvation is not based on, well, I'm an American and Americans are basically good people. My salvation is based on the fact that, no, I'm not. I'm warped like everybody else. But thanks be to God, apart from law, Jesus Christ has kept the law for me and gives that righteousness to me. And so justification, again, is not only the negative removed, it's the positive that is demanded is given to you, and it is God's free gift now and forever. And Paul makes this point in other places. In Philippians chapter 3, notice how he puts it. Paul's run through a list and said, I've got everything that the Old Testament would count. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was born in the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised on the eighth day. According to the Pharisees' way of looking at it, I was faultless, man. I was chasing after the law. I was doing all that. That's what Paul says in the first seven verses. Then Paul says, but I, I threw all that away. And here's what he says, starting in verse 8 of Philippians 3. What is more, I consider a loss, um, everything a loss, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from where? From God and is by faith. Here's the good news. When I stand there on judgment day, it's not a question of if Brett's righteousness is good enough. I'm not standing there in Brett's righteousness. I am standing there in the righteousness that comes from God. Because the God-man, Jesus Christ, has given his righteousness to me. And when we see that, I can look at everything else. And that word rubbish, the NIV is being nice. The, the Greek word there is literally excrement pile. The best I've done. What everybody else tells me to glory in, Paul says that's what's down at the sewer line. That's where I count it. That's where I throw it. Because when you see that I can stand there in the righteousness of Christ, God's own righteousness, why would I want my own? This is everything I need. But there's more. Remember those old commercials where the guy does that, right? Except for in this case, there really is more. Because I also have a problem that not only do I want to be free from the penalty and the stain of my sin, I don't want to live that way because when you and I are not loving God and loving our neighbor as ourself, it, it's sawing off my own joy. It's undermining who I was made to be. And so I've still got this problem. I may be forgiven, but what about that deep bent that is the wrong way? Well, there is good news, and that is that the third thing in uh, salvation is we are regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit so that our sin nature is broken. And we have a chance now for the first time to be made in the image of God. Titus chapter 3, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. And He saved us through the washing of rebirth 
and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Paul's using a, a metaphor there of what it's like to be born. And he says, look, you've been reborn. But this rebirth and this renewal is done by the Holy Spirit. And this washing means that you are clean. Not just from the penalty, but you have a new nature. He's reflecting this actually from Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel had prophesied the new covenant because see, Israel over and over and over again did not keep the covenant. They kept breaking the covenant. God said, I'm going to have to make a new covenant. Not because there was something wrong with my covenant, but because there's something wrong with you. And so I'm going to fix you. And this is Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. See, this is cleansing. This is the first parts that we talked about. But notice how it goes on. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. What these texts tell us is we're not only cleansed of our sin and saved from its pollution and penalty, but we are born again. There's no other phrase that can be used. When you become a Christian, you are not, it's not about I, I had an old philosophy and I've adopted a new philosophy. No. I was dead. I made alive. I was one person. I have now been born again. Literally. In my spirit, I have been born again. We who were dead to God and slaves to sin are now made new so that we are now alive to God and no longer slaves to sin. We are made new. The Holy Spirit comes into us, breaking sin's dominating power over us and drawing us to obedience to God and His law. And so hear the provision of God. Not only have we been justified because of regeneration, we're also being sanctified, growing in freedom from the power of sin and an actual holiness of life. Again, not to earn my salvation, but because I recognize God's law is a reflection of who God is and the way creation operates. And so I don't want to live in sin's dominion because it's always destructive sin that we think we can contain in genesis 3 ends up with one brother killing another on the same page and it spreads so bad that every we're told in genesis 6 the the thought of everyone's heart is just continually evil that's the way sin is we don't want to live under that and god says in regeneration i am freeing you from being a slave thank god almighty free at last and friend what did you do to get any of this nothing nothing you are regenerated by the holy spirit justified and cleansed by the blood of Christ, given the righteousness of Christ, declared to be God's children with claim to every covenant promise God has ever made. And none of it is done by you or me because we couldn't do it in the first place. Now, how do we apply this? And we're going to come to the Lord's table as the ultimate application. two very simple questions that arise from our text today. Number one, do I see my dilemma? See, here's the great danger. The danger is to say, yes, but. Paul, I, I understand it, but. There is no but. Do I understand my dilemma? This text is about me. My problem is not a few external actions. It's that I am sinful to the core. There was a Christian song uh, by a guy named Derek Webb, years ago that I love is called crooked deep down See, and that's our problem we're crooked deep down and in it he says you know don't ask my enemies about me and even worse don't ask my friends right because see they might tell you what I'm like and we're that way we are all that way left to our own we would utterly turn from God and give ourselves over to sin if God did not intervene 
Sin would destroy us and everything we touch. We, there, I say this with full confidence. There is no one in this room that understands just how destructive and horrifying sin actually is. Because if I understood this, I would not sin tomorrow. If it was not for the mercy of God, sin would have already destroyed the entire universe. That's its nature. So do I recognize and confess not just my sins, but my sin? Not just my external actions, but my very nature. Do I recognize I'm the problem? Me. Do I see the depth of my need for salvation and deliverance? See, anybody who's still trying to work to save themselves, I realize they don't know how bad it is. They really don't get how bad it is. Because if we understand, the more I touch it, the more contaminated and polluted it becomes. The more I try to fix it, the more parts of the thing I break. When you see that, you stop. Do I recognize that? Do I recognize my utter inability to save myself? If I could put it in a metaphor, you and I, friends, are polluted wells. A polluted well does not cleanse anything. It just pollutes whatever it touches. Do we recognize this? Again, the question is, if there are things in me saying, but, but, no, let me, let me explain. That's the sign that I've not let the law of God do its work. Now, that's the first part. Second, do I see the great provision God has given to me in Christ? We, if we let the law do its work and we see how bad our dilemma is, that opens up for us to see how great our salvation is. What we could never do, Christ has done for us. You and I cannot keep the law. You do not do it for a day, nor do I. You do not do it in thought. You do not do it in word. You do not do it in deed, and nor do I. You do not love God as you ought. You do not love your neighbor as you ought, nor do I. We do not. But Christ has done it for us. He was perfect in thought, word, and deed. He died and bore the covenant curse washing away our sins to give us full status as the children of God. The Spirit of God has come and regenerated us and made us new. So we are children of God now by regeneration, and we are children of God by adoption. And in both cases, our status is heirs of every covenant promise God has given. And God is here by His Holy Spirit to free you and I from the domination of sin. He does not want simply to free the penalty because sin is always harmful to you and me. I, I more than anything, want people to stand before God on Judgment Day clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But I also pray for you and for myself that we're not living under the dominion of sin because it's deforming to who we are. It's not what we were made for. And so the Holy Spirit wants to deliver us from that increasingly in this life until we wake up on Resurrection Day and we are free not only from His penalty, not only from His power, but from His very presence. And that's going to be a glorious day. So all of this is given to us in Christ. Now what we're going to do is we're going to come down to this table of mercy and provision. And here, we're going to remember and accept that we are broken deep down inside. If you are a believer, you accept and confess the fact that we are broken, that we have violated God's will and His law, and that we have no right to this table. None. 
except that Christ has kept it for us, and in him we are given every right to this table. And furthermore, we're going to remember that Christ has done all this for us to take our sins away, and the great provision we are given in Christ, and the great promise and power of the Holy Spirit. He who regenerated you and me makes this something more than bread and juice. He works to meet us in this sacrament powerfully. So what we're going to do in just a moment, we're going to do this a little differently today. For those of you who are used to being here, we're going to do something a little different. And in doing this, we are going to actually, uh, I'm going to read some scripture and we're going to respond and confess together. These are going to be up on the screen. We're going to do kind of a response reading. And all this is either directly out of scripture or some of it's actually out of the Book of Common Prayer. And we're going to confess our sins together as a statement that we accept God's decree of who we are, but we also accept his provision for us in Christ. And then we're going to sing a song as the elements are done. So let's stand together. And, and again, these will be up on the screen. So where it says leader, I'll do it. And then congregation, you can do along. Jesus said, the most important commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So let us confess our sins against God and our neighbor. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. If you believe those words we just read and prayed together, then I invite you to this table today. You don't have to be a member in our congregation. Uh, you are welcome to come to the Lord's table to receive fresh and new the grace and mercy of our God. And I encourage you to trust the same powerful Holy Spirit who regenerated you so you could even see the kingdom of God. That Holy Spirit is here to work, to feed and encourage and strengthen you and to empower you and me to walk a little more like Jesus this week. For what I received from the Lord I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus, we come to this table not because we are worthy, but because you are. 
And Holy Spirit, we come to this table not merely out of a sense of ritual, but because we believe your promise to meet us, freshly filling us with grace and mercy and the very power of God. Come meet us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to distribute the elements. If you need gluten-free bread, if you just raise your hand, that will be distributed to you. And then we are going to, as, as we're doing it, why don't we stand together? There's going to be a song that is going to be coming up here on the screen. It's a song we sing, but it's going to have the lyrics up here. It's called His Mercy is More. So let's stand up together, and we will worship together, and then we'll take the elements in just uh, four or five minutes. Christ, our Passover, is sacrifice for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Receive now the gifts of God for the people of God. This bread is the sacrament of Jesus Christ, the true bread of heaven, who was broken for you. Take and eat, receiving grace, mercy, and forgiveness. This cup is the sacrament of the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God slain for you. Take and drink, receiving full cleansing for your sins. Our triune God, we thank you for the great salvation you have given to us. Father, before the foundation of the world, you chose us. Jesus, in the fullness of time, you redeemed us. Holy Spirit, you came and regenerated us so that we are children of God, cleansed, counted righteous, created anew. Holy Trinity, send us forth under your blessing and power that we might love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we might love our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, we ask this in the name of Jesus our Lord, for your glory and for our good. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. Friends, receive the blessing of God as I speak the benediction over you. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go forth blessed and be a blessing. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.